Please open your Bibles with me to the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Mark ends with Jesus issuing a series of warnings in verses 42 through 50. In these verses, we see an increasingly serious focus, especially in the ongoing training of the Twelve. Anyone who has a casual attitude about their sin or the demands of discipleship will be shocked and hopefully brought to their knees by this particular passage because it is such a clear wake-up call for all true believers in Jesus Christ. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After a passage like this, it's really good to hear most of you say, thanks be to God. Keep that attitude as we go through it. As a preface to this particular passage, I'd like to make first something very clear. Just because the context here seems to indicate that Jesus is directing this teaching mainly to the 12 apostles, we cannot dismiss or water down his serious instruction as something that does not pertain to all of us ordinary non-apostles. I've heard people try to do that before. You can't. You cannot do it. Every believer is called to humbly grow in faith and obedience and to exercise his or her spiritual gifts in their new Christian life. And we do that as one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we belong and we must act like we belong. In other words, these warnings and teachings apply to all of us. How you respond to them, listen carefully. How you respond to them will tell you 
a whole lot about your current spiritual condition, about your heart. There's several responsibilities of discipleship here that Jesus thinks important enough to teach. And the first responsibility we see here of discipleship is in verse 42. Jesus warns that his disciples must serve or minister with integrity and not cause others to sin. This verse has been described by one pastor as, quote, a terrifying statement of ministerial responsibility. But don't let the ministerial word just lodge there. Ministry is service. So this is why we can apply apply this so broadly. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That sure makes you feel wonderful, doesn't it? This is serious. First, let's look at some definitions here. Little ones here is not referring just to children. It can, but in this context and other places, it refers not just to children, but to followers of Jesus. And we see that right in the phrase, little ones who believe in me. So what is it then? It's a term of endearment for those of any age who may, by their childlike humility, seem little or not that important from a worldly perspective. It could also be referring and including new believers of any age, again, who would still be uninformed about what walking with Christ means for the rest of their life. This great millstone, saw some pictures of what this was back in these days. It's a huge stone used to grind grain. It was so heavy that it had to be turned by a donkey. And there was a hole in the middle of it where the grain would, be, would flow down in between it and the bottom stone, whatever it was, the foundation thing. And so the top stone would be turning and grind it all up. I know, I know this may be dangerous, but if you can picture what Christ is saying, where would the person's head be if he's thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck? In fact, there are historical references to this kind of um, descendants for certain folks. It's not a pretty sight. Jesus sure knows how to get his audience's attention, does he not? The word or the phrase cause to sin here, some of your translations may may say stumble. The whole idea is put together. The word is actually literally scandalize. So that covers the basis. It means to cause someone to stumble and fall or lead somebody into sin, to be a stumbling block or the actual occasion of someone sinning. Now, 
I'm sure you've noticed as we've been going through Mark and probably when we went through Matthew years ago, that one of the things, the few things in the New Testament that we actually see Jesus so disturbed about is when he talks about or sees or interacts with someone causing some new or weak Christian to stumble or sin in their attempts to follow him. This is something that should be disturbing. And there are countless ways that this is done, most often never with any recognition or true confession and repentance of the heart or the mouth together, which is why it's so disturbing. An inconsiderate use or abuse of power upon such little ones, quote-unquote, can keep them from seeing the grace of Christ in their life and contribute to their despair and their stagnation in pursuing Him. How many have been turned off by a consistent, unforgiving spirit of someone? Who is turned away from fellowship because of knowledge of dishonest business practices or dealings by church members. All these things are, are possible things that Jesus is addressing. How many young believers experience the proper attitudes of parents in church settings, but then the crude language or blatant racism or sarcasm or malignant gossip and tyrannical anger of their own parents at home. What about behaviors that repeatedly condemn a young believer's spiritual efforts or belittle them to such an extent that an atmosphere of walking on eggshells is a phrase everyone in here understands. If you walk on eggshells in your own home that's supposed to be safe, there's something wrong with the atmosphere. And then there are those who try to prove their spiritual maturity by leading young believers into temptations and sinful behaviors that they keep telling everybody is really not that bad. And Jesus says this kind of offense is so serious that it would have been better for the offender if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I don't think we can make this any more serious or illustrate it any better than Jesus has just done. The second responsibility in this passage of discipleship is in verses 43 through 48. And notice that Jesus then moved from teaching about our responsibility not to cause others to stumble in sin to your responsibility to do whatever is necessary to deal with your own sin. It goes from others to mine. And while cutting off your hand, foot, or tearing out your eye, if they cause you to sin, is it not supposed to be taken literally? But it does provide a graphic example of how serious 
this all is, which is what the way Jesus teaches many times. The drastic nature of these particular words is meant to make you take the seriousness of your sins seriously. So don't miss on that just because it doesn't mean literally. There have been times in church history where people have taken this literally, especially in monastic circles. And what is usually found out? What usually, or most probably, or certainly happens is that people find out their heart can still be bent to exactly the same sinful desires. But boy, what a picture this is. The hand symbolizes what we do. The foot symbolizes where we go. And the eye obviously symbolizes what we see. And Jesus' lesson is really profoundly simple. Sin is powerfully destructive and must not be pampered. It must not be excused or ignored. It must be put to death. What we do, are there hidden activities or habits that occupy you? Things perhaps that if someone else knew about them, you would be very embarrassed? Where we go. Are there places you go or events that you attend that you have no real business being there and that involve temptations that you know you cannot handle? What we see in our multimedia-saturated world, are there things you see that we want no one else to see or times that you let your eyes see what you know destroys your soul? Did he cover the bases here? Yeah. And one of the best ways, if you're trying not to think about this right now because it's just something you don't want to deal with right now, one of the best ways to more accurately assess, for those of you who are going, yes, God, of course you know I want to deal with this is to think how much you're actually enslaved to sin is illustrated by what you do when you're by yourself, when you're alone. What do you do when you're alone? Where do you go when you're alone? What do you look at when you're alone? But... Once you reach the point, hopefully, of wanting to honestly evaluate the seriousness of your own sin by recognizing it, by confessing it before your God, you must determine to cut it off, to tear it out, to put it away, to put it to death. This is the acting out of true repentance which is the change of mind, the turning from the sin to follow the Lord in obedience. Paul expressed this in several places. 
but pretty directly in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. There he writes, put to death. What's the old word for that? Mortify. Save two words and say mortify. Put to death or mortify, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which is lust, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these, you too, now pay attention to the verbs here, once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul gives us a pretty concise picture here telling us and letting us see our new life in Christ involves a process that the big word for is sanctification, which is a mark of being regenerated and belonging to Christ. And you notice he says here that we once walked apart from Christ, and when we did, we were totally identified in sin. Now that we're united to Christ, we must put that life away because now he is our identity. There's so many ways to express this. But one way that I read in a book, I'm not going to give you the title or who, many of you will know this already. But this woman described her conversion to Christ and the change that had to be initiated afterwards as a train wreck. Because it was so utterly different from what her life was before. That can still be a good description, even if your outward mode of living in sin was pretty disguised or... To some people, maybe they couldn't see as much, but the whole point is we all know what our hearts are, and if we don't, we haven't looked very deep. That's why this is such a good exercise and why each of us is called to do it. Now that we're united to Christ, we're told that we must put that life of sin away. Why? Because now Christ is our identity. We also read here that the wrath of God is still coming on account of sin, but our sin has been paid for by Jesus. So there's this huge disconnect. If we're still headed that direction, if our sin has been paid for by the Son of God himself, who had no sin, took the condemnation for it from his Father, God Almighty, upon himself on the cross. In other words, 
We've been freed from God's condemnation of our sin, which Christ took in our place. But we still know the presence of sin and still battle it in this life. And we will every day until we die. God calls his people in this life to learn in this process to put to death the vestiges of still indwelling sin. Now, we know that Christ has already won this battle over sin's power. And he wants us to get a taste of his ultimate victory over sin's very presence in our lives now. Just a taste? Well, it's a pretty wonderful taste. It's a picture of what eternity will be, where sin will not be present, and all will be made right. Each of us is called, then, to actively engage in this process which is a mighty daily struggle. Knowing that sin's still indwelling power won't be completely gone until Jesus takes us home. But nevertheless, and I'm going to try to use this word correctly, we should gladly engage in this battle because we know our hope in Christ is certain and sure. Gladly in battle sound like an oxymoron. But that's what we're called to do. Each and every Christian is personally responsible to actively engage in this process. I heard it described once this way. In this particular calling, nobody, can I say you, you cannot sit on the bench. There is no one who sits on the bench. You are in it. Now, thinking then that you can passively not engage in sanctification, which is so easy to go to in our own hearts and minds. And what's despicable is that so many churches who call themselves evangelical churches preach a message that this is fine and dandy. Don't even bother with it. In fact, if it makes you feel bad, we're not even going to say one word about it when we're together. How do you think Christ feels about that? That is leading people straight to despair, enslaving, and some to hell who thought they were Christians that weren't, that aren't. Sanctification, then, as we see over and over and over again, is a natural outgrowth of being saved. 
being saved, being right with God because you've been justified by faith, being justified before Him by faith in Christ's person and work, before God. You can stand before God because you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He paid for your sin. Because of that, he, this is our calling for our life now. I hope you're catching this, but this is one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why he's called us to belong to a church. Because you can't do this alone. So instead of in the church being a society of, hey, let's learn how to sin in a sneaky Christian way together and not say anything about it, it should be a sharpening tool where we love each other and are so grateful for what Christ has done with us personally that it starts rubbing off on everybody else. And when we're tempted and fall and we've got sins that bother us and we work on that, that we have other people that are alongside of us that walk with us to encourage, to hold us up, to keep pointing us in the right direction. That's what this is all about. Please notice that in Mark's passage here, Jesus emphasizes all this by vividly showing us the only other alternative. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Let's work this out, okay? This is repeated with only slight variation for the foot and for the eye. When, when something's repeated twice in Scripture, what have you been taught? Wow, that must be important. What about if Jesus repeats something in almost the same way three times in a row? In other words, you can't emphasize it anymore. This is the ultimate emphasis. Hell, that the word that's used here, is actually referring to the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. The one time I've been outside of the United States and went somewhere, as I told you, was when you guys let us go to, to Israel back in 2000. That seems like, I know, I was young then. We saw where this was. It's just a big garbage dump. And in these days, there was a fire that burned continually in it. It is one of the most graphic pictures of hell anywhere on the face of the earth. Except if you live on a certain island of Hawaii right now and your house was right in the way, that's pretty good. But for Jesus and his readers... This was close to home. It was an illustration that was just right out there. Not only could you see it, you could smell it all the time. It's a graphic picture of eternal torment. So if you find anybody that doesn't want to argue or doesn't want to believe and argue with you that there is no such thing, that we all are just, you know, disintegrated and there's no punishment, et cetera, why don't you just point them to several times where Jesus goes through these kind of illustrations? 
Hell is eternal torment. And Jesus' point should be obvious. Sin is serious. It cannot be pampered with. It cannot be excused. It cannot be ignored. Think who is saying that. The one who took ours upon himself and died on the cross. That took his father's own condemnation for our sin upon himself. So these words are not coming out flippantly. Now, a genuine believer will be grieved by the still residing sin in him or her. But a genuine believer, while being grieved, will also be engaged in the battle, in the Holy Spirit's power against it. And a person who thinks they're saved, but who has no concern for putting away sin or battling it, should be concerned. Because that attitude is a sign of someone who does not really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what do we do? We go, I don't want to be grieved. I mean, I signed up because everybody told me if I became a Christian, everything would be hunky-dory. Victory, 24-7. If you heard that as part of the gospel, somebody didn't tell you the right gospel, or at least that part of it. We live in a culture where at some colleges in this country of ours, if somebody is offended by one or two words in some class, they file suit and take the person to court. Touchy-feely doesn't even come close to feeling what's going on around us. Christian, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. You have a Savior that died for you. This is what He's called for you right now. He's called me. He's called you. We're in this together, and we can... Very interesting what's going on around here. We have an opportunity every day to know the grace of Christ in our lives. To learn this every day. And you know, for, for every one of us, that's what we need. We need an everyday reminder. Because if you're like me, you go a couple of hours rejoicing in the Lord. And the next second, what happens? still residing sin tempts and turns our eyes and leads us astray, etc., etc. This is a constant battle, a constant battle. Now, God has given us many passages in his word to remind us that we have to intentionally and actively and constantly be engaged in putting to death 
the still residing sin. And you probably know and have your favorite verses. These are all over the place. Uh, I'm going to share four. They'll probably be on most of your lists as well. Let's start off by learning something about temptation. Where's that one? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What's that mean? Your particular temptation to sin is not unique. I'm sorry to tell you that. You're not that special. It's common to mankind. It may be unique in a situation you're in. That's not what we're saying. We're saying it's common amongst human beings. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What most of us do is we're tempted, we want to sin, we don't want to escape. So we start off with the excuses. Second one is kind of a progression, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, what? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's that a picture of? Actively engaged with Christ. Not hiding, not withdrawing fellowship. Not by not telling anybody what's going on in your life. And we're supposed to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is our hope, who for the joy that was set before him, who would that be? Part of that joy is purchasing you. Purchasing me, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Incredible passage. How about Romans 12, 1 and 2? This is another way to say putting to death sin. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Ouch. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we all probably have heard the explanation, if you're a living sacrifice, that doesn't mean you can crawl off the altar. It's a good picture. What about 1 Peter 2? First part of verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, most of you know that there's a particular book. In fact, we've studied it several times in different groups by one of the old guys, John Owen. What's it called? Mortification of Sin. I strongly suggest that book. There are... Um, 
current issues of it that are in English that most of us need instead of dealing with the verbiage and having dictionaries that don't even have some of the old words in it. Those are available. The book's not very thick. It's just about this big and about that high. And it is worth every sentence. There's a third responsibility of discipleship in verse 49. And this is living with suffering and sacrifice. 49 says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And most of us, what does that mean? This saying only appears here in Mark. So it's probably having some very special uh, purposes, especially for who Mark was mainly writing to, which was the believers in the persecuted Roman church. And these people were helped by this understanding that the purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as just for them, unique for their situation. Of course, when it's happening to you, you, it's hard to look out that it's happening other places. Instead, they were taught here that all believers are purified through what? Words, things that we don't want to have to deal with because our parents told us that we're supposed to be happy and carefree the rest of our lives. Happy meaning no problems. doesn't mean joy through them. What's that? That we are purified through suffering, sacrifice, and persecution. This is a common theme throughout Scripture, but it's not exactly welcomed by any of us. But we should learn and have our antenna up that when those times come and we're persecuted for the name of Christ or we're suffering some way because of that in whatever situation you're in, not only does it bring glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ, but it purifies us burns away the junk that we tend to focus on and makes us realize, hey, this is what's most important. So if we wish to be a disciple who follows Christ, and there is no other definition of disciple, and we want to serve and minister in his name, we've got to be willing to be salted with fire. There's a fourth responsibility in this passage. We've got to live with and as salt in verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. One of the Jews' favorite sayings, especially amongst the rabbis who got all the sayings going, most of them, the world cannot survive without salt. Why? In the ancient world, they didn't have any refrigeration. Um, And so salt was used to preserve food from rotting. And most of us have heard this before, but Jesus' disciples are called to be salt in this world, meaning that we are to be a preserving influence in a decaying world. Did, uh, did everybody hear that? 
Your influence in this world is not to make your mark. Your influence in this world primarily is to be a preserving one pointing to Christ in a world that does not know him. And no matter who we are or where we live or what we do, our very presence ought to make some kind of difference upon the atmosphere and the people around us. Some kind. People's consciences should be kick-started. Conversations should be elevated. Ethical corruption should be restrained. Honesty should be promoted. The moral atmosphere in general should be engaged. All of this just because our own humble attitudes and convictions and love of Christ and his word are lived out. You know that person at the store you almost cussed out last week? What picture did they have of you as a Christian? They didn't know I was a Christian. What if they see you again and you've got on your t-shirt? What if they won't come to this church and visit? That happens to each of us all day long, every day. And how we respond and respect the people around us, how we speak to them, what we call attention to, all of that can be opportunities to bear witness to who our Savior is. And it's, it's exciting Every time you talk to somebody, you don't have to share the whole gospel or give them some track. Sometimes that's appropriate. But just how you interact in our day and age, people can tell there's a difference by the little things. And you can point to Christ. And we ought to point to the only hope that lifts despair. And we offer our countenance and our responses to people, to counter the brutal and harsh strategies appearing at every turn and level and day-to-day interaction. People are blown away when they finally figure out that you don't have an angle, that you're just loving them because of who they are and care about them. You're not trying to get something from them or get a cheaper price or work a deal or connect with their boss or just go through the list so the question here is does our presence make a difference notice that Jesus's warning here is about his followers losing this characteristic in them that brings this life to the world he says if salt loses its saltiness how do you get it back once you lose a reputation that's tough to do So what is that characteristic? It's the disciples' spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice to Jesus Christ and the gospel. You know what? The world is dying of thirst, and only Christ himself is the living water. Only 
the world, the only solution to the darkness that we see is what? The light. And you can go on and on and on and on. And we've got to realize that. So, each of us who believe in Christ therefore belong to him. And we have several responsibilities that Jesus has talked about in this one passage. We have a responsibility not to cause other people to stumble in sin, especially those who are new in the faith or little or not well-known or whatever. Ordinary people around us, that's most of us who are his disciples. We have a responsibility, secondly, to do whatever is necessary to deal with or put to death our own sin. Thirdly, we have a responsibility to embrace the suffering and the sacrifice that may come with belonging to Christ. Count that cost. Are you? Am I? Are we? And fourthly, we have a responsibility to live as salt in this world, bringing glory and honor to Christ in all things. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what an opportunity. Thank you for passages like this that you use to get our attention, to call attention to where we really are with you, to what we've been rationalizing. Thank you for giving us direction about what direction to go. We know that you are working to, to bring to the to, the, to everyone's view, our own view, the new life that you've given us in Christ, the heart that you've made alive, and that we have an opportunity to grow in this every day of our lives for the rest of our lives. Help us literally, help us be willing to be glad, see your work for us in Christ Jesus is so important as so great, as so needed, that we will approach each day with gratitude and look forward forward to standing for you in whatever situation you have us. Thank you that you teach us these things in your word. It brings life to us in so many ways. And we pray that we could be followers of you who do give you the glory in all things that we would be quick to confess and repent our sins, that we would be at peace among each other. And that's only possible when we live in this way. Father, thank you for this weekend, for remembering those who have given their lives on another front so that we can meet together, so that we can enjoy the blessings that we have here. Don't let us take any of this for granted. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I'm going to read a a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Praise God. Amen. You're dismissed.